American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, help others find it by sharing the episodes and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today is a special day on American Catholic History for two reasons. First, because we have new intro music. Yes, I've wanted to use Simple Gifts as our official music since we launched, but we're only now making it happen. And this recording of it is special because it was performed by five of our nieces and nephews, three of my brother Kurt's children, and two of my sister Erica's children. It's originally a Shaker song tune written in 1848, and it's been used in lots of ways over the years. Right. Aaron Copeland incorporated it into his Appalachian Spring Suites, maybe I, one of the most familiar yeah, I places. Love, I love that that rendition of it. And I've always loved it just as a pure, light, quintessential Americana tune with its very Christian thing going on. So to me, it was a natural fit for this podcast, and we hope everyone enjoys it. Yes, I think those nieces and nephews did a great job. Absolutely. The other reason today's episode is special is because today we're talking about my grandfather, Noel Duby. I'm named after him. It's our 100th episode. We figured we would do something special. And it also means our new music was performed by the great-grandchildren of the subject of the episode. I bet there aren't many podcasts where something like that happens. Probably not. Now, I never met your grandfather since he passed away in 2010, and we only got married in 2017. I know, so sad. I, he was so special, you would have loved him. I believe I probably would have, because, wow, what a life. He was a man of deep prayer, deep love for the Blessed Mother, and deeply devoted to his wife and 10 children. And he played a key part in the success of the D-Day invasion of Normandy in 1944, and the race into Germany after it, earning a number of medals along the way. So, why don't you start Grandpa Noel Doobie's story? Sure, but I'm going to have to call him what we always called him growing up, Pepe, which is an affectionate French-Canadian name for grandfather, kind of like when you say daddy for your father. Pepe was born in South Berwick, Maine on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1919. So it's easy to understand why he was called Noel. <laughs> That's right. He was the third of four children born to my great-grandparents, Alfred and Florida Doobie. Alfred was a French-Canadian immigrant from Saint-Mathieu in Quebec province, while my great-grandmother, also French-Canadian, was living in Rollinsford, New Hampshire. Alfred ran a very successful wholesale grocery business, and as Pepe grew up, he went to work for his dad. In high school, Pepe was class president, graduating from Berwick Academy in 1938. But in his late teens, he showed some of the innovative thinking that would help him to play such a key role on the beaches of Normandy in June 1944. He actually invented a tabletop baseball game with plaster figures of fielders, a die that would be rolled as the pitch, and then the batter would swing a little wooden bat to hit the die out into the field, and depending on where it went and what number came up on the die, that would be the result of the play. Now, you call it tabletop, but to help our listeners understand, we're not talking about a board game that could be stored in a closet. We're talking about something more like a ping pong table, a whole table devoted to this one thing. It was about six foot square, and these plaster figures were about eight inches tall. And the die was his own invention. He actually got a patent for the die. This game became popular in the local area, and there were leagues and tournaments that formed around it. So before there were video games and fantasy baseball, 
This was the hot thing. At least in Northeast New England, it was. He actually demonstrated it to the manager of the Boston Braves and played a game against Red Sox Hall of Famer Ted Williams, the greatest pure hitter of all time. For the record, he beat Williams in that matchup because Ted Williams couldn't get a hit. Of course. Of course. But something else happened in his late teens, which would color his life. His mother died in 1935 during the depths of the Great Depression when he was just 17 years old. When this tragedy struck, he turned to the Blessed Mother to be his mother. And a deep devotion was born that would remain with him for the rest of his life. When Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941, he decided to enlist in the army, but his father didn't like the idea. Apparently, he was a bit clumsy or awkward because his dad said that the army wouldn't take someone with such weak ankles who tripped and fell over all the time. But he went to the enlistment office in Boston in April of 1942 and passed the physical. Still, his dad was skeptical, thinking that only meant that the army was desperate or was an army of misfits. Well, his time in the service would tell a different story. Doobie shipped off to boot camp, first to Fort Devens, which is in northern Massachusetts, and Devens will come up again later in the story, and then down to Fort Meade in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. It was while he was stationed here that a very important event happened. He had leave during the 4th of July weekend, with the 4th falling on a Saturday. On Friday, July 3rd, July 3rd, a very good day. Yeah. <laughs> he went to a USO dance at the Knights of Columbus Hall on K Street in Washington, D.C. What a different idea that is from what K Street is known for today. While at the dance, he met a young red-haired lady and they danced and had a good time. The story is always better when I tell it in person. You can see my own red hair. Yes. Before parting from her that night, they agreed to meet at the USO dance the next night as well. So the next day, Saturday, July 4th, Pepe was heading to the night's hall again. But before going, he did what he did frequently. He stopped in a Catholic church to pray before a statue of Our Lady. Pepe always said that while he was praying, he saw Our Lady smile at him, which he took as a sign that he was going to meet the one for him that night. So he went to the dance. But he couldn't find the red-haired lady. He went up on the balcony that ringed the room to look for her. He still didn't see her, but he did spot this other lady, and he thought she was kind of cute. So he went down to meet her. And when he found her, he understood what the Blessed Mother's smile was all about. Because there she was, wearing a large, miraculous medal. And that was, as they say, that. They spent the next day, Sunday, together. He found out she was from Pittsburgh and was the daughter of very Catholic Polish immigrants. She was a civilian working in Washington for the Navy. And her name was Antonina or Antoinette or just Tony Grzeski. Another thing they learned about each other was that they shared the same birthday. Antoinette was also born on Christmas Day, but one year earlier. The next day, Monday... Pepe was shipped off to his next training location in the South, and they wouldn't see each other again for a few years. But they would write to each other every day. My mother said she found two large boxes filled with all their letters. It was actually via a handwritten letter that he proposed marriage to your grandmother during this time. That either was an incredibly nerve-wracking time waiting for her response, or it was supremely peaceful because he had great confidence in what the answer would be. Well, she said yes, and none too soon because it was early 1944 that his unit, the 29th Division, 121st Engineers, shipped to England to prepare for Operation Overlord and the fateful landing in Normandy. After training there for a time in preparation for the landing, the big day came. 
Late on the night of June 5, 1944, Sergeant Duby and his squad boarded ships to make the crossing to Normandy. When dawn rose on June 6, 1944, the cliffs of Normandy could be seen, but only faintly because the naval bombardment of German positions had begun and German guns were returning fire. It was D-Day. Pepe said that never in his life had he prayed as many rosaries and acts of contritions as he did on that crossing. In fact, if you read The Longest Day, that's exactly what is stated about him. He prayed an act of contrition. But through it all, he was calm, ready for whatever would happen, and just present in the moment. He did what he could to help his men remain calm as well. As Sergeant Doobie's landing craft was drawing near the shore, another craft near them hit a mine and began to sink. This compelled the coxswain piloting their craft to change course and aim for a spot a mile to the north. And this worked out well for Pepe and his squad because the place where they eventually put in was relatively quiet and they were able to exit their craft directly onto the beach without even getting their feet wet. Pepe said they may have been the only soldiers not to get their feet wet that day. And Pepe was especially happy about that because he couldn't swim. <laughs> landing on the dry sand was not the experience of so many of the troops that day. Some landing craft were hit by shells and all were killed more or less instantly. Many who made it in close were dropped off short of the beach, some fortunate enough to only have to wade through water up to their thighs or something. But many, many others were dropped off in water much deeper, even over their heads, since they were carrying up to 80 pounds of gear, and since many, like Doobie, couldn't swim, there were a great many who simply drowned. On shore, the exchange of fire was so thick that, as Pepe later reported, it was difficult to walk without stepping over or around dead bodies. But his engineering unit had to navigate along the beach that one mile back to their original target because their unit had been tasked with clearing a minefield above the beach so that infantry and vehicles could move off the beach. After reaching the sector where they were supposed to have landed, they were given a new task. The Germans had erected a 100-foot-long double-layer concrete wall across the road that allowed vehicles to leave the beach heading into Verville. The Germans had erected a 100-foot-long double-layer concrete wall across the road that left Omaha Beach heading into Verville. That wall had to be blown so that the tanks and armored vehicles in support of the infantry could move off the beach. The engineers who were supposed to do this were nowhere to be found. They may have ended up many miles away, or they may have been obliterated before they reached the shore. The officer in charge spotted Doobie's unit and redirected them to this task. Under fire, Doobie and his demolitions expert reconnoitered the double wall and determined it would take about 1,100 pounds of TNT to clear the obstacle. So, with the infantry suppressing German fire and taking out sniper nests, the engineers set to it with Doobie supervising the operation. Once the charges were arranged and wired, Everyone ducked behind the seawall, and Sergeant Doobie turned the detonator, which set off the almighty explosion. Doobie said he got as thin as he could against the seawall because bits of that massive concrete barrier were raining down all around them. It worked. A 15-foot hole was opened up. A couple of hours later, after the combat bulldozers did their work, the tanks and other armored vehicles were finally able to leave Omaha Beach for the interior of France. 
But the problems for the Allies were not over. Normandy is farm country, and the farmers' fields had been neatly sectioned off with high, thick hedgerows that the farmers had cultivated and maintained for centuries. These were great to keep farms separate, but they were a nightmare for an army trying to race across the countryside. The tank drivers thought they could just drive over them, but the hedges were too stout, so the tanks would go up in the air and expose their vulnerable bellies to enemy fire. Sergeant Doobie, showing that ingenuity which had served him well when he was younger, devised a method whereby two long poles would be fixed to the front of the tanks, then the tanks would poke large holes in the hedgerows with them. Then Doobie and his men would stick explosives in the holes, duck behind the tank, and blow the hedgerow so the tank could proceed. So it is no exaggeration to say that the success of the Normandy invasion was due in no small part to the ingenuity and grace under fire of my grandfather, Sergeant Noel Doobie. Doobie was with the army as they moved across France and entered Germany in early 1945. But he was not destined to stay in Germany for long. In February, as his squad was moving near Ulrich, Germany, they came upon a minefield where five soldiers had been badly injured, but the medics couldn't go get them due to the mines. Well, since engineers are trained to clear mines, Doobie and his men were the ones to do the job. Doobie himself went about prodding the ground with his bayonet, digging up the mines as he found them, disarming and disposing of them, and thus enabled the soldiers to recover the first four wounded men without incident. But as he was continuing on to get the fifth, a cold rain began to fall, and he could tell that the final soldier was starting to feel the effects of his wounds and the cold. So he took off his coat to help that soldier's condition. But now he was feeling the effects of the cold more, which made him hurry just a little. As he was crouched down pulling up earth to extract one more mine, he sat back on his haunches a little more forcefully than he intended to, and his left foot activated a mine that he hadn't noticed. He was blown into a nearby crater, his lower left leg and left forearm badly mangled. He survived the blast, and through the shock he actually maintained his cool well enough to direct his men to the remaining mines and how to extract the remaining wounded soldier. Once all of that was done, he was taken by jeep to a nearby field hospital, where his lower leg was amputated below the knee and his forearm was bandaged. And that was the end of his World War II story. He was sent to a hospital in Paris, and from there, when he was well enough, he was sent back to the U.S. to recover at McGuire Hospital in Richmond. His biggest concern at this point was whether his fiancée, Tony, my grandmother, spoiler, would still want to marry him since he was so badly injured. Spoiler, she did. <laughs> he lost his left leg below the knee, his left forearm was saved, but it would never be the same, and he lost the peripheral sight of his left eye. When Grandma came into his room and saw him standing with crutches, she took one look at him and said simply, You need me now more than ever. And that was that. They were married later that year on September 17, 1945, at her home parish in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. For his service, he received a chest full of medals, a silver star for his work saving the men near Ulick, especially noting how he kept his calm after being severely wounded himself, two bronze stars, one for blowing the wall on D-Day and one for his ingenious method of clearing the hedgerows, the purple heart for his injuries sustained near Ulick, and in 2009, he was honored with the Silver de Fleury Medal, which is given to individuals who render outstanding service to the Engineer Regiment. 
If you've ever seen the movie The Longest Day, Pepe's role as the man who blew the wall is actually played by Jeffrey Hunter. It was dramatized, of course, but when Hunter's character heroically dies while setting other explosives, we always shout at the screen that, no, he didn't. He came home and he had 10 kids. Right. (laughs) You know who else Jeffrey Hunter played? He played Jesus in King of Kings. So yeah, same actor played Jesus. And my grandfather. Well, of course. Where do you go from there? Man. Well, after he recovered from his injuries, he returned for a time to his father's wholesale grocery business, which had moved to Salmon Falls, New Hampshire. But when Pease Air Force Base opened in southeastern New Hampshire, he went to work at a civilian capacity there, eventually becoming the assistant commissary officer. During this time, their family grew pretty quickly. They had 10 children overall in 13 years. Two daughters and eight sons. And their eldest, Mariana, is my mom. That's right, folks. I married the eldest child daughter of an eldest child daughter. Pray for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And my mom had her own military career serving as an army nurse in the 85th Evac Hospital in Fubai, near the front lines during the Vietnam War. And she was honorably discharged as a captain. Yes, she certainly did. (laughs) So anyhow... When the commissary officer position opened at Fort Devens, Massachusetts in 1968, Pepe took that position, becoming the first civilian to hold it, which he held until retiring in 1984. To be near the base, Grandma and Pepe and their children who were still at home moved to a large old house with an old barn and a large front yard in Pepperell, Massachusetts. I grew up in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, which is about an hour from Pepperell, so we saw Grandma and Pepe a lot, and we played in their large front yard all the time. Lots of wiffle ball games. I have so many memories of that house. And that house and its large front yard was where the next big thing happened. He retained his deep devotion to the Blessed Mother, and he believed that her protection was what preserved him through D-Day and through so much of that war. In gratitude, he wanted to do something for her. In 1982, While in prayer, he sensed the Blessed Mother directing him to build a shrine on his property. So he did. Well, it took nearly a decade and about with prostate cancer before he started it, but he did it. The shrine started in the early 1990s with life-size statues of the apparition of Fatima and were joined in 1993 by a large mural, 20 feet tall and three times as wide, which depicted the miracle of the sun and the visions of the children at Fatima. Next added were Stations of the Cross, then side gardens and a walkway to the shrine lined with statues of angels. Eventually, a large painting of the Divine Mercy image was added and a large illuminated cross. Over the years, more statues of saints were added along curving walkways and side gardens. And the pilgrims came. At first, it was just a community thing with people responding to flyers that he posted around Pepperell. But eventually word of the shrine spread, and by the late 1990s, about 4,000 people were visiting annually, and they were coming from all over. Nearly all 50 states and many other countries were represented in the guest book. For many years, from May through October, there would be a monthly day of prayer and devotion at the shrine, which would feature mass, confessions, a rosary procession around the grounds, and a talk frequently given by a prominent speaker like Father Andrew Apostoli, CFR, Father Seraphim Mikolenko, MIC, or Sister Mary Anastasia, OSST, or many others. But even when there wasn't an event, there was never a day from May through October when there wasn't at least one pilgrim who stopped by to meditate in the peaceful and holy atmosphere. 
Doobie returned for the first time to Normandy in 1989 for the 45th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, and he was treated like royalty. He met and became good friends with the mayor of Vireville, making multiple trips back to France in subsequent years to stay with the mayor. Each time he went back, he was humble about what he'd done, but the people feted him every time. I was blessed to be with him on his final trip there in 2005. It happened to be right after we, we arrived in France, right after John Paul II died. So my mom and my youngest sister, Stephanie, and I made a quick trip down to Rome before we went back to Normandy. When we were in Normandy at the American Cemetery, I'll never forget this beautiful scene. There were two soldiers who had come from Germany on leave. They were stationed there and my grandfather was there in his wheelchair. And those two soldiers came over to my grandfather with just the respect and, and the way that they looked at him and they talked to him. It was it was amazing. So special. Uh, in November 2009, he was present at the dedication of a plaque at the National D-Day Memorial in Bedford, Virginia. The plaque, honoring the 121st Engineer Battalion of the 29th Division, gives a description of the essential work done by that battalion that day, and specifically mentions C Company's work clearing the wall to Viraville, and it even names Sergeant Noel Doobie as the one who supervised the work that day. There's also a plaque on the seawall on Omaha Beach near the place where Sergeant Doobie turned that detonator to blow the wall to Viraville and is dedicated specifically to his squad, 9th Squad, 3rd Platoon, C Company, 121st of the 29th. My grandfather, Sergeant Noel Doobie, passed away six months after that ceremony in Bedford, Virginia, on Friday, May 21st, 2010, right after praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet with family during the Divine Mercy Hour. This peaceful and holy death with the benefit of the sacraments and surrounded by family was truly a fitting end to such a life of devotion, love, and prayer. He was one of the greatest people I have ever known, and whether because of his contributions to winning World War II, or because of the graces poured out on so many at the shrine, or because of the great legacy of his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, our world is a better place for his having been in it. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. We also ask you to support the many productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about my grandfather, Sergeant Noel Doobie, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heister-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. <laughs>